Trades. You're listening to the news on RTHK. The weak global economy. Easy. The volatility and the upswings and the mood. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Good morning, business people. This is Wednesday, the 8th of April, and we're back after a five-day long weekend and ready to take up those business opportunities. This is Money for Nothing, and I'm Richard Harris. Your business headlines for the day. We have merger mania. US logistics giant Federal Express parcels up the European courier company TNT for 4.4 billion US dollars. We've just heard the Royal Dutch Shell is in talks to buy the third largest UK energy group, BG Group, And markets continue to rise while we're on holiday, despite weak job figures out of the US. Europe booms while the US struggles. Chinese market hits a seven-year high on more speculation that the government will boost the economy. And in other news, in line with the Chinese government's aim to allow more defaults, troubled internet company Cloud Live defaulted on its bonds yesterday. Chari Solar was the first company to default last year. The central government has a new tolerance for defaults, which are likely to increase. And Greece has made a huge claim to Germany for World War II reparations of just over 300 billion US dollars. Germany points out the reparations were made in 1960 and claims that both countries closed the file in 1990. So good luck with that then. Well, we have an exciting mix of guests at Money for Nothing today. Our market commentator is Adrian Gornell, stock analyst and independent consultant. Then we speak to the manager of perhaps the only green fund based in Asia, Green Dragons' Jeremy Higgs on the opportunities in the environmental sector. And finally, money for nothing goes boldly into space, the final frontier, to explore strange new worlds to which no man has gone before. We rendezvous with Professor Stephen Freeland, who's one of the most recognised legal experts on the business of outer space. And then finally, to keep them all in line, is our resident uh, guest host, and in fact our birthday boy, boy today, Tobias Hexter of the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Good morning, Tobias. Good morning, Richard. I have to say, Chinese university professors are getting to look younger <laughs> and younger. Thanks. I guess. Um, the jobs numbers in the US were quite weak uh, just before we went away on holiday. Uh, and there seem to be a lot of figures coming out that indicate that the US is slowing down. What's your take on this? Oh, that elusive interest rate rise, that's never going to come. Bad news is good news. I think I would agree. It might be a bit impacted by the very harsh winter temperature that still hit March. But inevitably, the, the stronger dollar is going to put a bit of a pinch there. So are we thinking that this slowdown is a slowdown or is it really just uh, maybe like a mid-course correction, a mid-course consolidation? I wouldn't think it's a severe slowdown. It might just be enough not to raise interest rate. Janet is happy. Hmm. Okay, let's go back to business uh, news. US logistics giant Federal Express buys European courier company TNT for 4.4 billion US dollars. Their takeover combines two weak delivery companies in Europe into one equal the size of the market leaders DHL and UPS. The deal comes as e-commerce has put pressure on their delivery systems. Business package volumes have actually been under pressure, even as e-shopping has increased. Why could TNT not make it on their own? Fred Smith, who's the CEO of FedEx, explains. Well, I think the uh, issue with TNT is they uh, were simply uh, a fourth player in a market that has three very, very strong entities. So it wasn't that in recent times they were doing uh, things wrong. It was just their 
market presence. And in fact, uh, we give them high marks in developing an improved strategy on a go-forward basis, which is one of the things that made TNT attractive to us. Reports coming through early this morning say that Royal Dutch Shell is in advanced talks to buy the third largest UK energy company, BG Group. No price has been mentioned, and the deal's not yet been done. But BG has a stock market value of $46 billion, so it will be a large transaction. The combined entity would be worth around $200 billion US. That would make Shell more of a gas company than an oil company. The strong dollar's also been mentioned as making it easier for US companies to buy into Europe. Will this merger news be good news for the markets? It will. Uh, deals like this, big deals, uh, are the sort of things that investors love. If we're going to get more corporate deals, more merger and acquisition activity, then I can tell you most traders will be saying, bring it on. That's Brian Toro of UK stockbroker J.M. Finn. Uh, Tobias, you're a Dutchman. A lot seems to be happening in your neck of the world at the moment. Oh, those Dutch, they're pesky little takeover guys or targets. Uh, the one thing I think about the TNT deal is that this might not be exactly what Draghi wanted with debasing the euro because a lot of foreign companies will start buying up European companies and you can already see the Pavlov reaction. Oh no, there go the jobs. And a couple of them, especially in France, have been sort of semi-privatized. They're listed on the market, are nice machines to put a lot of people on the payroll, which looks good politically, and in comes the evil American acquisitor who can now pay top dollar but we'll try to make processes more rational. But in the case of TNT, of course, yes, it's quite a unionized company. But in fact, it's quite a minnow. It's reasonably large in Europe, but it almost doesn't exist anywhere else in the rest of the world now. Oh, they were way too small, and I think this is the only outcome, as exactly the CEO of FedEx said. This is the only acceptable outcome for the company itself. So the counter-argument in this specific case would be uh, block the takeover and everybody goes out of a job in the not-so-near future. Well, looking at the star mar- stock markets, uh, markets rose in Europe with the euro stocks up 1.5% to 3,768. Uh, it's pretty well up 4% since before Easter. On the other hand, the US has been sluggish, uh, partly because the eurozone has been benefiting from a weaker currency and the US has been suffering from a stronger currency. Uh, the US ended down just a little bit last night with the S&P ending at 2,076. The market's getting used to slowing growth picture in the US by the looks of things. First quarter season, reporting season starts today and as usual we expect Alcoa to be first up. So we'll have more on that tomorrow. Currencies remain dominated by the rise in the dollar. The euro is currently trading at $1.08. The yen is a touch weaker overnight at uh, 120.3. And sterling's trading at $148 to the pound. And that's 11.48 Hong Kong dollars to the pound. Uh, the oil price has been volatile. Brent crude's trading $3 higher than last week at $59.10. Well, let's go straight to our market guests and bring in uh, Adrian Gornall, who's uh, been sitting there patiently in our Admiralty studio. Adrian's got an interesting background for a stockbroker. Then he spent four years in industry with Unilever in northern China before returning to the markets. So he's tasted both Wall Street and Main Street uh, and here to give us his insight on China. Good morning, Adrian. Good morning, Richard. How are you? Very well, thanks. Now, Adrian, the, uh, your big thing at the moment, you're looking at luxury brands in China and the pressure on prices there. Yeah, I'm fascinated to see a sort of continue an ongoing trend now for, for, for um, luxury um, brand owners to actually cut price. I mean, 
Uh, previously, Economics 101 would have predicted that uh, most luxury goods have a, almost a negative elasticity of demand, i.e. Um, if you actually raise price, you wouldn't see any, um, any change to the end demand. But what we're seeing now is Patek Philippe, uh, following on the back of Chanel, actually actually cutting price um, to presumably maintain market share. This is very interesting, I and mean, ultimately I think it will lead to uh, uh, to brand destruction. Is, is, um, is this related to the corruption issues in no, the uh, clampdown on corruption in no, China? Well, I, I mean, obviously um, the, the, there's been a slowing in, uh, in outflow, but um, I, I suspect there's more related to... Um, what I sort of identify as the tyranny of large numbers, marketers tend to make the mistake with China of, of overestimating their target audience. Um, so if you have a brand like Chanel that decides that it's actually got 200 million legitimate consumers of its product, um, it'll, um, it'll, it'll tend to cut price in order to grow the market. Um, and ultimately that'll lead to brand destruction. Um, but what, why do you say brand destruction? Because... What's the competition from local brands? Well, it's not that. It's more about the destruction of your long-term equity. I mean, whereas previously you had um, an aspirational good that only the only the wealthy could aspire to, if you start um, uh, addressing what you, you you now see as a sort of premium mass segment, um, your 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 good in itself becomes less desirable. Ultimately, um, you wouldn't want to be a member of a club that uh, will allow you to be a member, so to speak. In the well, most most of them, I can't afford to, to be a member of the club but the one key thing about many of these uh, luxury brands uh, often domiciled in Europe has been that China has been by far the biggest element of their growth uh, and does this mean that actually luxury brands should be avoided from now on? I think you'll see a, re, uh, a rebound in equities as, as the, uh, the brands are looking to f- effectively uh, front load consumption. I mean, they're looking to boost. They're looking for super normal gains. But longer term, I think the brands will will effectively destroy themselves. I mean, it's it's almost a Hegelian relationship. The um, the brand itself um, creates the consumer in a way. In, in, it, it gives status, but the the, the consumer themselves uh, also create the brand. Um, but. Um, May I ask one question? Because I was surprised that also like the top high-level brands like Patek Philippe are lowering their prices. Absolutely, absolutely. I th- I th- that's, abs- that's for me. That's fascinating. Could um, it be, be related to the fact that for a lot of people who have slightly less than pristine or clean money, um, all very expensive watches and other stuff are a great store of money? Should the big purge eventually come? Is there that aspect in it, or is it purely as you think demand-driven from real demand? I, I, I think the brands are making a mistake in, in uh, as I say, overestimating the size of, of, um, of their target market. I call it the tyranny of large numbers. I mean, as a, as a marketer or as a, a man in the street, it's very difficult to visualise what 100 million means. I mean, you can visualise 10 consumers. You can probably just about visualise 100,000, which might be the capacity of your favourite rugby stadium. But when it comes to 100 million, you know, these numbers are vast and... Um, you know, when I was marketing a premium brand of soap in the nineties in China and building these brands, um, one was given sort of ridiculous forecasts that were based on 
really on a, a lack of understanding of where, where one's core consumer lied. But it, isn't it, when you're looking at these kind of brands, that um, it's a very fluky thing anyway? Today's brand may not be tomorrow's brand, and you have to build it very carefully and very slowly. Well, so, absolutely. For instance, some brands might actually do extremely well in China. Well, brands do well, but, but if you're looking at long-term brand equity and, and long-term uh, establishment of a brand, I, I, th- I think it's very dangerous if you, if you go after the mass market as a luxury good. Just one um, uh, final question, Adrian. Uh, China's obviously had a dash for growth when uh, when you were working there uh, five or six years ago. Uh, slow down a lot now. What are you looking at in terms of Chinese growth maybe for the next couple of years? Well, I think if you look at consensus, um, which, again, I'm not particularly sure one should follow, um, you know, one's, the consensus appear to be looking for a slowdown from perhaps 7% to sort of 6.5% by, by 2017. Um, you know, this, this may or may not be the case. I mean, the official numbers will be, I, I suspect, pretty much met. What's more interesting is when Xi Jinping you know, decides to announce a victory over corruption um, and we get back to growth. Is that ever likely to happen? Well, of course it will. You know, we're, we're what, what, sort of nearly two years into the five-year plan. Presumably we, we will begin um, sort of looking at a period where we, you know, we've overcome corruption. It's now time to sort of get back on the growth pedal well, to the metal. So that would signal the campaign against corruption would be over and we all go back to do what we were doing before? I suspect that that's the case, yeah. There'll, there'll be... I mean, the fundamentals will be transforming. I mean, clearly China needs to move towards more of a domestic demand-driven um, economy and therefore different stocks will will benefit from this. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I suspect we're, not, we're probably not too far from possibly major asset write-offs um, uh, and... Sorry, not asset, but large liability write-offs um, and uh, a shift back to growth, um, you know, along with a, probably a very high-level corruption um, corruption trial being, being concluded. Well, in the meantime, the stock market keeps going up. Uh, Adrian, thanks very much for coming in today. Very good very to much you, appreciate Richard. that. It's currently just coming up to 8.17. <laughs> Well, we've just spent a holiday weekend in air much cleaner than usual. Uh, helped by a typhoon off the Philippines flushing uh, clean ch- South China air over our shores. But because of the need to clean up the environment, Asia is likely to be a source of new ideas, new companies in the next decade. And to tell us about it is Jeremy Higgs, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager of the Dream Green Dragon Fund, which invests in Asian environmental companies. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning, Richard. Um, just to give our listeners an idea what green businesses include, it includes things like clean energy, wind and solar, alternative energy like gas, water resources, recycling, green transport, and carbon strategy. The key thing here really is to get the Chinese government on board, actively involved in getting involved in some of these issues. Are we likely to see that happening? Well, I think we are actually seeing it happening, uh, Richard. And I think even if we go back to the 11th five-year plan, um, uh, where Wang Jiabo was uh, Premier One was was very explicit. This is going back 12, 13, 14 years. This is going back around about uh, the the two. 10 years ago, the beginning of that. We're, we're just nearly at the, the, the end, end of the 12-5-year uh, of, of, of plan at the moment. 
but um, that the, 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 the government has been putting in more and more policy um, in order to clean up. And part of the uh, um, uh, 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 reason um, for the maybe the slowing from very, very high growth to a more sustainable model that we see in China is because of the government's um, focus and determination to, to, to lower um, uh, uh, the uh, uh, pollution rates. But politically, it's very sensitive, isn't it? I mean, the first uh, Chinese word I learned in Beijing was Iran, which was environment, and that was in 2009. But still, not an awful lot seems to have happened since then. Well, the pollution has got worse. Um, but policy that has been, been laid out has, 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 has increased and is increasing. And I think we're roughly at the tipping point now that we're going to see, we're, we're, we're going to see levels of pollution um, that, that, that are going to decrease in China. From here. Um, doesn't a fall in the oil price mean less desire to become involved in clean energy? Not necessarily. I think uh, as far as energy is concerned, China needs all the energy that can, it can get. And this is one of the problems because <clears throat> that some um, uh, 70% of uh, uh, China's energy is, is fired by coal, is coal-fired. And um, that, that uh, you, you know, oil is not necessarily the big uh, contributor to energy and coal fire. It's, uh, um, uh, uh, um, it, it, it's coal. May I ask, sorry, one question? Uh, because it looks a lot of the policies against pollution in China are also aimed not as much as mitigating it, but shifting it more westward. What's your opinion on that part? Well, I think that's a very fair comment, but, it's, but, but that is the economy is being shifted westward. But certainly what we're seeing now is a plateauing, um, very importantly, in coal-fired power. And say that China um, last year um, uh, uh, that, that, um, uh, burnt rough, roughly about 3.9 billion tonnes of coal. We're going to see this gradually decrease. Um, so I don't think actually pollution is being pushed west that overall, you know, pollution is following, following where the economic growth is, 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 is going. But, but in a way that the economic growth is being pushed west by the yeah. government, also putting some of the most polluting industries out of areas with a lot of population and where people are getting a bit richer, getting a bit more of a voice yes. into like uh, the <clears throat> east western provinces. But those polluting industries, for instance, if we look at alternative energy and gas, we're seeing more and more of those polluting energies, um, industries being, being um, uh, 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 encouraged to use gases um, a, a, as fuel rather than coal. Jeremy, as, uh, just finally, as an investor in the environmental sector, what are your favourite areas or sectors in, uh, uh, in the areas you look at? Well, I think um, waste to energy is very interesting. Um, you know, that, that, that as the urbanisation of China has continued, there's been more and more waste. And the, again, the, the, the day, very good example of government policy is their policy of disposal of urban waste is through incineration, but incineration waste to energy. H hence and the incinerator on Sacred Chow. 
I, I don't think there is one there yet, is there? Uh, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about China. China, China appears to be um, decades ahead of uh, Hong Kong as far as um, uh, 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 incineration ways and, and carbon strategy, carbon credits, the sort of things that are used in Europe. Is there any plans for that? Oh, there's great plans. There's seven schemes in China at the moment, pilot schemes that are going ahead. Um, uh, um, uh, uh, Two in provincial level in, in, in Hebei and Guangdong, and five in the major, major cities, Beijing, Qinjin, Chongqing. Um, uh, uh. So, so plenty going through. Jeremy, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you very much for coming in. Uh, that's Jeremy Higgs of the Green Dragon Fund. From the 1st of May 2015, the statutory minimum wage is raised to $32.50 per hour. Employees covered by the minimum wage ordinance are entitled to this rate regardless of their mode of employment. Employees with disabilities can opt for assessment and receive wages according to the productivity assessed. For details, call 2717-1771 or visit Labor Department's website. As with everything about space, the business of space is huge. In 2013, the global space sector employed about a million people. Global space revenues were around 260 billion, and the US space budget was around 51 billion. Not bad for an industry that didn't exist in 1957 with the launch of Sputnik 1. In fact, if we had a day without space today, we'd have no global telephone, internet, satellite TV, no global GPS services or accurate weather forecasting, much more difficult minerals exploration and agricultural management. Basically, we couldn't function today without the space business. To speak with us today, we have one of the leading authorities on space law and space business, Professor Stephen Freeland of the University of Western Sydney in Australia. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Richard. How are you? Very well, thanks. Um, everyone's asking me that this morning, so mm. it must be good. Um, Steve, space is big and it's a massive business, but who actually owns space? Oh, excellent question, and one that's been uh, troubling people for a long time. The way we categorise space, from a, at least from a legal perspective, is that it's one of those areas, a bit like the high seas, um, which we regard at law as a global commons. What, what that means is you can't have sovereign claims. The management, if that's the right word, of the area of space is within the international framework. So we have a series of treaties which were established in the 60s and 70s which give fundamental principles. But as you said in your introduction, um, since that time, the technology has just absolutely raced forward, firstly from a military and strategic viewpoint, but then, of course, there were massive commercial spin-offs of that technology. That's still happening. We're really still in the opening phases of technology, and yet the law, uh, in terms of the specifics, hasn't moved uh, in the, at the same pace. And but so you, we you, have you've got this conflict. You've got the military side of it, which, of course, in, in one way was the driving force. But you now have enormous commercial elements. I mean, I think it costs something like half a billion dollars to put a satellite into space. Well, and, and, and perhaps sometimes more, depending on what you're trying to do. Absolutely, we have a whole lot of mismatches because, as I said, space is this common area which is for the common good. The technology was driven largely in the Cold War by military and strategic um, 
considerations. The commercial sector, of course, is there really to maximise their bottom line. So you have a mismatch, um, yet it seems to have worked reasonably well. It worked in the sense that we haven't had yet a major conflict or a major claim of sovereignty or something like that. Because I think we've got um, something like 60 countries now with the space capability. About 60 countries that have cap- capability of, of launching some form of satellite. That's going to um, grow further with new technology, nanosatellites, small satellites. But uh, despite the fact that more and more countries are coming to space and more and more people are coming to space, there still are three or four or five major space superpowers. And as between themselves, they want to maintain their high ground, but they're also fiercely competitive in terms of whatever advantages they may have. Can I ask one question? How optimistic are you that we're going to solve this, given that we actually haven't even solved the poles yet? Especially the north side now, there's a new, quite a lot of uh, power munging going on between the big powers on Earth. How is it going to happen up there? Well, that's a very good question as well. As Richard said in his introduction, we use space in so many ways. And so even though there are a whole lot of vested interests and competing interests and strategic interests in space, everybody realizes that, in a sense, we all have to play the game if we are to maximize the ability of humankind to garner all of these advantages. Now, it's not easy, um, but some of the uh, plans that we have for space will require cooperation. The community through the United Nations does cooperate in scientific and exploration, they're not so cooperative when it comes, obviously, to military and strategic and commercial ventures. But there is a common aim, that is, um, we've taken the philosophical decision that we want to maximise what we can garner from space in terms of advantages. And because of the breadth and depth of uh, those projects, we will require more and more cooperation. So space business is really a question of... uh negotiation at the moment and and people have been quite happy to uh, to let that go forward rather than maybe be aggressive about it well i think that's probably a very good way of putting it um as i said it sort of worked even though the legal framework isn't perhaps adequate enough to meet all the specifics that said i think we're at a point now where the the growth the exponential growth that we have had in the past will pale into insignificance given the way that technology is moving forward. Well, Steve, that's... So we um, uh, sorry, you've got to have to go there now, but uh, we appreciate you coming on. We'll have to have you come back because it's clearly a big topic and lots to discuss. That's Professor Stephen Freeland of the University of Western Sydney in Australia. And just before we go, the opening markets look pretty healthy. Nikkei's up half a percent, Australia's up half a percent, and Seoul's up about 02 The... Um, Tobias, just before we go, just uh, uh, 10 seconds on what do you think the next quarter is going to be? Uh, Every new quarter, new action. I think the main word of the next quarter will be currency and the impacts the fluctuations had on their economies will slowly trickle down, either positive or negative. That's great. Well, the weather today, cloudy with a few rain patches. It'll be cooler and the maximum temperature will be about 22 degrees. Moderate to fresh north to northeasterly winds uh, and the temperature um, at the Royal Observatory is 22 degrees Celsius. And now the news read by Todd Harding.
The police are continuing to hold the mother of a teenage girl who plunged to her death from a building in Repulse Bay yesterday morning. The father's been released on bail after the pair were arrested on suspicion of neglect. Tony Flores reports. The 15-year-old girl fell from a family's home in Repulse Bay Road. Officers said there were no suspicious circumstances and is thought the teenager had been unhappy. But during the course of their probe, police say they found the girl had no birth certificate. A source told RTHK that police believe she didn't go to school, although she had private tutorial lessons. As police carried on with their probe, they discovered that the girl's mother, who's 53 and from the Philippines, had overstayed her visa, possibly for around 20 years. The girl's 58-year-old father, who's British, is suspected of helping the mother remain in Hong Kong illegally. The pair were arrested over the alleged visa irregularities, as well as on suspicion of ill-treatment or neglect. Residents of Marwan say they fear noise pollution from planes flying over their homes will get worse once a third runway is built at Cheklap Kok. Some residents complain that their lives are already disturbed by noise from aircraft going over the island. The environmental group Green Sense says it's also concerned that flights may also be allowed to take off after midnight when the new runway comes into operation. A judge in Florida has ordered the removal from court records of documents detailing sex allegations against Queen Elizabeth's second son, Prince Andrew. The allegations were made by a woman, Virginia Roberts, who claimed she was forced to have sex with the prince. The documents were included in a case seeking damages against a former friend of Prince Andrew, Jeffrey Epstein, who's been convicted of sex offences.